Hello and welcome to the Clinical Signs Podcast. Today's episode is going to be on fentanyl. Fentanyl has been in the news quite a bit and I thought it was time for me to to talk about it. It wasn't really in my, uh, in my mind per se in a list of things that I wanted to talk about, but I had seen yet another story of an animal involved in an overdose or as they say in the news, an accidental overdose. And I'll put a link into the story. Apparently, a woman overdosed or dosed herself on uh, a drug. I don't know whether she actually took fentanyl specifically or whatever she was taking was adulterated with fentanyl. But anyway, apparently, the person also dosed the dog, and the dog was found unconscious, and apparently not breathing, and apparently the dog was revived, thankfully, uh, with naloxone, which is a narcotic reversal agent, which is uh, easily transported and, and administered now because it can be um, administered as a nasal spray. And that really got me thinking that it was time to talk about it. Also, fentanyl, let me spell it for you, is F-E-N-T-A-N-Y-L. And I hear a tremendous number of people in the media talk about fentanyl. It's not fentanyl, it's fentanyl. So from that alone, from the annoyance factor for me of how people are pronouncing it, they're pronouncing it incorrectly. I want people, of course, what is this podcast about? Information and education. I wanted you to have the information and also the education to be able to accurately speak about fentanyl and the issues with it and the benefits of it. And that's what we're going to cover today. So if you get your ears on, here we go. So fentanyl is just one of many different types of drugs in a drug class called opioids. When you talk about opioids, we're really specifically talking about receptors within the body on particular cells. In opioids, there are opioid receptors in the body, and this class of drugs happens to fit into those receptors. So you can think about drugs as a key and the receptor as a lock. And the key, when it is administered, will try to find the correct lock. And that's when it performs its actions. So fentanyl is just one of the drugs in this drug class. These are controlled substances by the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA. So you have to be a licensed practitioner to administer and or prescribe these medications. And that means you'd have to have a state license. You'd have to have a, a state license to practice medicine. You know, if you're a physician or a veterinarian, you would need any sort of state drug licensing that your particular state requires, and then a federal a federal license from the DEA Drug Enforcement Administration to actually dispense and dispense or write a prescription for these drugs. So there, there's many layers and levels here of accountability. And also part of the prescribing process is you have what's called a veterinary client-patient relationship. Without that relationship, you, number one, should not, and number two, legally cannot dis dispense prescribed drugs. Generally speaking, except for two exceptions, almost all of the opioids that we use in veterinary medicine are extra-label or off-label. There were most of these drugs are labeled for human beings. So as a as a um, licensed veterinarian, 
we can administer these drugs, but we would be administering them extra-label or off-label, meaning that the drug is not labeled for the use in the species or the route that we want to administer it or the frequency with which we need to administer it to achieve what we need to achieve. Ideally, in veterinary medicine, you're using veterinary drugs first, and then if you don't have that option, then you go right for uh, a human drug, hopefully that you know is effective, using it at the proper dose, the proper route, things like that, for the and for the proper effect. So in, in this case, we do have two veterinary-approved drugs, which I'll just mention now. One is buprenorphine, or called buprenex. It is a injectable or can be given orally opioid that has, has some analgesic effects and some sedative effects. And the other drug is butorphanol or torbutrol or torbugesic. It comes in several different concentrations. One is more for um, larger animals and one is more for the smaller animals. Torbutrol is for the smaller animals. Torbugesic is for the larger animals. It's got a higher concentration. And it is a, a weaker, uh, less potent analgesic and sedative than buprenorphine. About as potent as, as or slightly less potent than morphine. Buprenorphine is more potent than morphine. So what are the uses of opioids? There's really three main uses of opioids. Classic is as an analgesic, causing pain relief. Generally, it's best for acute severe pain and very severe pain, mild to moderate pain. Generally, you don't necessarily need a, an opioid. You could use an opioid in those cases. Generally, they're mostly effective for a short, you know, week to two weeks of, of mostly acute severe pain. And after that, there really is no benefit to their use. There's many other drugs that can be used that are much more effective. Second use of opioids is as cough suppressant. Now, it's not true of, of every opioid. There are specific opioids for specific jobs. And a lot of you have heard of codeine. Codeine is an analgesic, but it also has a secondary benefit of being a cough suppressant. And then the third use of opioids is as an antidiarrheal medication. And there's a specific drug called loperamide, or the trade name is Lomotol. And that's a, generally speaking, a tablet that you would take for for diarrhea that is not resolving on its own. And I think a lot of people with traveler's diarrhea, per se, will use Lomotol to slow down, to decrease the uh, functioning of the GI tract. So if you just think back for a minute about what I said about a lock and a key, right away you can see that in the nervous system there are receptors for opioids in the uh, respiratory system, there's receptors for opioids. And in the GI tract, which is where diarrhea occurs, there's receptors. So the specific keys that fit those receptors are just based on the particular drugs and where they're going to act and how effective they're going to be. Since we talked about the uses, let's talk about the pharmacologic action. And I again mentioned the lock and the key. I think that's a really great visual for you. So the opioids are attaching to opioid receptors. The opioid drugs are attaching to opioid receptors, such as the mu receptor in the body. Mu is standing for morphine receptor. And those are scattered throughout the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, and even locally. Came across some information that 
they have found that inflammation in particular areas of the body can be mitigated with doses of morphine such as into a joint. If there's a joint with inflammation, you can inject morphine and it will have nerve induction blocking effects. So what's happening when when these keys are administered to a patient inside the body? Well, the keys are going into the lock and it's not a permanent lock. It is a temporary lock, meaning that over time, as a body metabolizes or breaks down those drugs, that key will come out of that lock. So that key being in the lock means that it's blocking the conduction of pain because when there's pain, the body is releasing many different substances to make its own keys to put into those locks. And that's what's triggering the pain. So the opioids are really blocking the conduction of the pain pathway so that pain really can't build up in that area through the body's own key and lock system. So when we talk about the medical use or the therapeutic use, generally speaking, opioids are administered, they have to be repeatedly dosed. If an animal, let's say, has, has very severe pain, let's say we have bone cancer or there's a, a fracture or a very complicated surgery that needs to be performed, you have to handle a lot of tissue, you have to maybe fix a broken bone, let's say. One dose of an opioid is not going to do it in general, although, of course, there's always exceptions to every rule. There are now long, there's long-acting buprenorphine that will last up to 72 hours for one injection. So again, as I said, there's there's longer dosing products out there, but in general, most opioids have to be administered relatively uh, repeatedly during the course of 24 hours. And if anybody has had a loved one in the hospital and they're put on a morphine drip that they can self-administer, you know that that has to be repeated over and over and over because of that lock and key, because the body metabolizing that key, and then those receptors are then vulnerable to the body's own keys and allowing the pain to, to, to resurface. So opioids are drugs that have dose-dependent effect. And what do I mean by that? Generally speaking, the more you give, the more an effect you're going to get up to a point and up and only with specific opioids. So if we talk about morphine for a minute, which is basically the standard opioid, which we talk about, fentanyl being a, 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 a different opioid, but in the same class, of course, you need to, to administer morphine at, at a particular dose, but you can administer higher and higher doses. And of course, the higher and higher and more and more that you give, especially if you're giving it at high doses and very short intervals, you're going to have the potential for creating a, quite a number of side effects. Now, there's other opioids, such as buprenorphine and butorphanol, that have a, a maximum effect. So you can give more and more of the drug, but there's no more of greater effect based on that. And we will talk about that in a little bit, why that is. So some of these drugs basically have no ceiling effect, and some of them actually have a ceiling effect. So the, the ceiling effect means the more you give, you're not getting any more benefit from, and you're not getting any more effect from. So if we talk about you had talked about that these are temporary drugs, temporary binding drugs. If we take fentanyl as an example, we need to talk about what's called drug half-life, and that's abbreviated T1 half. If we administer to a dog intravenously, IV, into a vein, 
fentanyl has a maximum effect of about 45 minutes. Okay, so we talked about number one, repeated dosing. Yes, you need to dose to effect. You need to dose on how the patient is actually acting. But after 45 minutes, 50% of the of the keys are out of those locks. And again, that's going to allow the body, if there's pain being created or there was a traumatic event, let's say, then the body is going to be releasing substances that are circulating in the in the body, basically through the bloodstream, looking for those keys or looking for those locks and those opioid receptors. If you administered one single dose of fentanyl, it would be completely gone in a little over five hours. So when you're using fentanyl intravenously, you need to keep repeating those doses over and over and over. Now, a cat, this is a great example of the differences in species. The difference between cats and dogs is, is rather large. So I said that in a dog dose, uh, the half-life in a dog intravenous dosing of fentanyl is only 45 minutes. In a cat, quite much longer than that, it's 2.5 hours. So six half-lives, if you if or six or seven half lives, let's say generally at seven half lives, there's almost no drug remaining in the body. There's a very minuscule amount, so basically there would be no effect. So if we seven times two point five in a cat, it would be fourteen, seventeen and a half hours to basically all that drug is gone. Versus a dog, which is three hour or excuse me five hours, so there's over a three times increased duration of effect in a cat. That also brings up the point to any any nurses or veterinarians out there that you don't dose a cat as often as you would dose a dog. So what are the sources of these drugs? There's been a lot of talk about that in the news lately. And there's real, basically two sources. Number one is there is a natural source from the poppy plant. And I think that there's been a lot of talk about that over the years. For example, I remember Afghanistan grows a lot of poppies. And once you I believe you have to look in some fashion. You have to process the poppy plant. And there's an alkaloid in that plant. That's just a chemical that can be turned into morphine. And that's the that's the baseline. Morphine is, you always reference all, all other opioids to the potency of morphine and the effect of morphine and the dosing and the, the amount you would give and the frequency off of morphine. So that's a natural opioid. And then there's synthetic opioids. A couple of big ones. Number one are fentanyl. That's exactly what we're talking about. The fentanyl that's being, uh, that's adulterating other drugs is ma manufactured in a lab. That's all that, that means that synthetic is not made from a natural product like it's growing in a plant, such as the poppy plant. And also for you history buffs out there, methadone, was created by the Germans during World War II because they were concerned that they would not have a access, would not have access to morphine itself for the injured during the war. So now there's three different types. I, I had alluded to this previously when we talked about several of the types of opioids available to veterinarians. We have three types and Everything in medicine likes to be classified and categorized. So the one of the first of the types is what's called an agonist. And these are generally called pure agonists, which means basically 100% of that drug is going into, the, that key is going into those mu receptors in the body. And examples of pure agonists are morphine and fentanyl, which we've been talking about already. Second type, as I had mentioned, buprenorphine, 
morphine is called a partial agonist. That means that it is chi is going into those mu receptors, but it's also going into other receptors. So it's not flooding all of the mu receptors as strongly as morphine would. So that's called a partial agonist. So buprenorphine is one of those drugs that partial agonists have a ceiling effect. Whereas the pure agonists do not have a ceiling effect. You can give more and more and more of those drugs causing more and more side effects. Buprenorphine, the partial agonists have a ceiling effect. They will cause analgesia up to a point and then you can give more and more and you will get no more analgesia out of that animal. And then we have what's called the antagonists. Antagonist is just the complete opposite of an agonist. It's it's antagonizing the effect of the agonist or the partial agonist. And that drug everybody has heard, I'm sure, if you've been awake for more than 20 minutes and listening to any of the news, naloxone. I had mentioned naloxone comes as a um, as an injectable product, but it also comes as a nasal spray for reversal agents for human beings. And we also use it in animals because animals can have side effects sometimes from these drugs. And naloxone has a relatively short half-life. So in general, you're going to have to repeat dose animals if there is an overdose, because you're also going to be monitoring that patient, right? The name of this podcast is clinical signs. So you're going to be monitoring the clinical signs of the patient. You're going to be monitoring the probably SPO2. You're going to be looking at the gums, which is you look at the capillary refill time. You're looking at the heart rate. You might be checking the blood pressure. You're checking the respiratory rate. And you're going to repeat that over and over and over over the course of a period of time to monitor that patient and also the consciousness level of that patient. So that was the three types of opioids. And then we talk about routes of administration, which are many. There is parenteral, which is basically meaning you're giving an injection. And we had mentioned IV dosing, intravenous dosing. That's either as a bolus, as a as one, as one dose of the drug, or as a CRI, which stands for constant rate infusion. When I had mentioned that it's a temporary that these opioids going into these lock receptors. It's temporary that the body is metabolizing that drug. If you give something as a constant rate infusion, you're dripping little bits in over time, all the time, basically. So you're always keeping those keys circulating in the system, looking for those receptors. And that's especially true. CRIs are, are used in several different fashions. Number one, you might administer an IV bolus to, to induce an animal to get the animal down under anesthesia. An induction agent is can be one drug or, or a combination of drugs or what's called a cocktail of drugs to push an animal down into unconsciousness. You then might maintain on a CRI uh, in the plane, any anesthetic plane. And the CRI, as I just mentioned, will help maintain an animal. You're going to mix the fentanyl with other drugs such as ketamine. Again, which is another street drug, but it's a really excellent anesthetic drug. has a lot of safety built into it. And I mean, again, used in a therapeutic manner. So that CRI could be used to maintain an animal under anesthesia. Sentinel would be an adjunct to that. You can use a CRI for pain if you're so choosing to um, give an animal, let's say, a fentanyl drip. Again, after a, a major problem or let's say there's severe pancreatitis which is an incredibly uh, difficult disease, number one, to treat. 
And number two, uh, the, the pain can be excruciating because that's coming from heavy inflammation in the pancreas. And that's basically in the upper front of the abdomen. And that can cause a lot of pain, nausea, and vomiting as well. So a CRI can be used as a, an adjunct or the primary means of providing analgesia to a patient. It can also be used to maintain a patient under anesthesia. We can administer these drugs intramuscularly or IM, subcutaneously or SQ, or, or it's also abbreviated SC. We can do it intraarticularly. I had mentioned that morphine can be injected into joints that are inflamed for pain relief. And also they can be used as a spinal or epidural. An alternative route would be through the mucosa. And some of these drugs can be administered PO or per os. That's just a Latin abbreviation. That's a fine way to give something. Generally, that would be a pill of some sort, could be a liquid. And the issue with giving a drug, with giving a drug by mouth, meaning that it's swallowed, is what is called the first pass effect. What that means is, when you think about it, you eat a meal, goes down into your stomach, right? You chew it up, you swallow it. There's some saliva mixed with it, goes to your stomach. And then your stomach and your intestines will further break down that food through the churning, through the different, sometimes hormones, sometimes enzymes used to break down the food. And then that food has to be absorbed. And that goes into the portal bloodstream. And then that goes from the, the portal bloodstream goes directly to the liver. So all the food that you eat first passes through your liver. It's broken down, of course. It's not food going into your veins, but same thing is true of a drug. So when a drug is administered, it's absorbed in some in the stomach, some in the small intestine, different segments of the small intestine, and then it goes right to the liver. And then the liver is going to metabolize those drugs. And sometimes we the metabolite is more potent than the drug itself that's that's swallowed. Sometimes it's less potent. So the liver is going to metabolize that drug and change that drug. And so that's called the first pass effect. And generally speaking, for the most part, most drugs are less potent when they come out of the liver than they do when they're absorbed in a different fashion. So that's the first pass effect. We can also administer these drugs via the buccal or rectal mucosa. The buccal is your cheek. So some of these drugs can be administered into the mouth uh, into the cheek pouch there on the side, and they'll directly go into the bloodstream and they will bypass that first pass effect. So the first time that that drug is, is into, the, into the body, there's no uh, metabolism by the liver. It will occur later, but a lot of that will hit those receptors much quicker. And rectally, it's the same thing. There's a tremendous amount of mucosal lining in your GI tract, so that is actually an effective way to get drugs into the body very quickly. Also, fentanyl is is predisposed to being absorbed through the skin. Now, there's a patch called Duragesic patch, which years ago had been used in veterinary medicine. So the drug has to be mixed with other chemicals to get it to absorb through the skin. Of course, our skin is water repellent, so you need other drugs to help the fentanyl get into the system. And generally, those patches last for quite a while, but there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of potential problems if you are sending an animal home with a duragesic patch because, number one, it could fall off. Number two, there can be problems with if the spot gets too hot, you're going to have the animal absorb too much fentanyl. And, of course, people taking the patch off and using it on themselves. So once that drug is out of your control, 
really all bets are off. So I, I have never used that myself. I would be very leery about ever sending an animal home on it. That was routes of administration. So let's talk about potency. I said morphine is our baseline. So you could think of our baseline as, as zero or one. Most people would think about it as a one in potency. Fentanyl is 100 times stronger, more potent than morphine. So when we, when we say that, I'm going to talk about the dosing next. So the morphine, we dose in milligrams. Milligrams is one one thousandth of a gram, right? Which is not a lot. It's a very, very small amount. And when we talk about dosing fentanyl, we're talking about micrograms, which is one millionth of a gram. So morphine is one one thousandth of a gram in dosing. Fentanyl is one one millionth of a gram. So that's one thousand times less fentanyl you would you would dose a patient with then morphine. So that's an incredibly small amount. And I know, again, there's been a lot of talk with this epidemic of fentanyl overdoses in people in the United States that it only takes a very small amount. Well, it's really true because the fentanyl is so strong. You only need a little bit of that key to get into those locks to have an effect. And just as a reference, one drop of water, I thought this was, was a way to sort of help you think about how much this is. A drop of water is equal to 0.05 of an ml. We had already talked about mls previously. So that's 20 drops of water in one ml. And one ml is, is not a lot of water. Uh, one gram is one mil is one cc, if you remember back to our previous podcast. So 20 drops of water in one ml. And we're talking about, if you think about one millionth of a gram, there's 20 drops of water in a gram. So that would be so little water, you couldn't even see it. That's what makes fentanyl incredibly dangerous, is that there's so little needed to to get into the body through, obviously, multiple routes, which we just mentioned. So side effects, we generally don't see that many side effects in animals, like occur in people. One of the biggest side effects would be respiratory depression, which is probably leading to most human beings that are accidentally overdosing on these drugs. And again, I had mentioned a, a dose-dependent effect, meaning that if you take a lot of this drug, it is really going to depress the respiratory system and ultimately shut it down. And you know from our podcast on hypoxia that doesn't take very long for the brain to shut down. We do have a little bit of reserve oxygen on that hemoglobin, but it's only going to be several minutes. You deprive the brain of oxygen that you're going to have a serious problem and people are going to pass uh, from that. It would be possible for that to happen in an animal, but you'd have to really overdose the animal. And when you have respiratory depression, again, referencing our, our, our other podcasts on hypoxemia and pulse oximeter, we had talked about the increased PaCO2, right? The, that's the partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the arterial system that's building up here. And generally speaking, the buildup of CO2 is our trigger for respiration. But in this case, because you now have a particular key and a particular lock, you are blocking that stimulation from causing breathing. We get central nervous system depression, of course. I said these drugs normally can cause sedation. You can get cardiac depression, right? So you're getting a slowing of the heart rate. We get GI stasis, I had mentioned, and that's one of the benefits of these drugs is that if there's diarrhea, you can treat it. 
relatively easily with Lomodal, although Lomodal doesn't really work in animals. It works great in people. So animals tend to have um, would tend to have less receptors in their GI tract, these opioids versus people. Sedation, which I had mentioned, right? We, we like that sometimes. We want the patients to be a little bit more quiet. We can also have the opposite effect. We can get excitement, and which is especially true in cats. We can get ataxia, which is animals staggering around. We can get vomiting, especially in cats. Cats, obviously, we saw before have a three times longer half-life for metabolizing these drugs. So cats are a lot slower at metabolizing these drugs than dogs. And in cats, you can get mydriasis, which is a very large pupil, that meaning now that if you give an opioid to a cat, they can be really susceptible. They can be susceptible to very bright lights. So you don't want to really expose an animal to that. You'd want to keep the, the lighting subdued as much as possible. We can get hypothermia, which is a decreased body temperature. And of course, secondary to the GI stasis, we could also get constipation. I think most of these are, of course, I'd mentioned a few that happen in, in cats and some in dogs, but a lot of these are going to affect people. And that pretty much sums this up. I have a few links for you here. I really wanted to talk about fentanyl um, so that you, you had, a, had a pretty good understanding actually of it. There are many different opioids out there that are being used in the hands of skilled veterinarians, perfectly legitimate, perfectly reasonable therapeutics for patients. I think you can have confidence in your veterinarian if they're administering any opioid in their practice, primarily going to be as, a, as an analgesic, probably in combination with several other drugs. And Again, commonly, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is very common to be used with synergistically with opioids, and you're going to get very potent suppression of inflammation and very good pain relief. Well, that brings this podcast to a conclusion. I look forward to seeing you again. Take care and be well.